right, well, good morning once again. I hope everyone had a wonderful Thanksgiving with your families. We um, are, well, let me just have you turn to uh, the book of Galatians, uh, chapter 1. For the new folks, let me just say welcome. It's good to see you. And also, to let you know, we st uh, we've started a new series uh, here at Calvary. It's a series through the book of Galatians. Uh, but instead of going through the book verse by verse, we've decided to study it topically based on its main theme. Now, the main theme of Galatians is liberty. The liberty that is ours or the freedom that is ours in Christ. The key verse comes out of chapter 5, verse 1, where Paul said, Stand fast, therefore, in the, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. And so, as I said, when we begin this series, we are going to focus uh, our attention on three main areas or three topics of liberty that Paul brings up in this epistle. Liberty from lies, liberty from law, and liberty for life. Now, last time we finished looking at the first main point, liberty, liberty from lies, which in some ways, as I said last week, was kind of like an introduction to the second main point, liberty from law, but I decided to include it as a main point because of the day in which we are living. Let me review a little bit from last week. I decided to include liberty from lies as a main point because of the day in which we are living, and by that I mean we are living in a world full of lies. Now, there's always been lies in the world. Uh, that's obvious. Although Jesus said before he would return, lies, deception would ramp up. We're seeing it. It's getting worse, I think, every day um, in our country and around the world, really. Um, as we said last time, some of these lies that we come across on a daily basis, uh, some are small and have a minimal impact on our lives, while others are very serious, profoundly hurtful, and life-altering, like the lies that are told within the context of adultery. But most people understand that all lies, whether serious or small, can only affect us on this earth. In other words, they can only hurt us temporarily in this life and can do nothing more to us after we're dead. But then there are some lies that will not only affect us in the temporal, they will keep on affecting us in the eternal as well. And as we said last time, these lies tell us how to get to heaven. But in reality, they will damn us to hell. Now, one of the lies that Paul dealt with in his ministry endeavors, in fact, the one he's dealing with here in this letter to the Galatians, was the lie of the Judaizers, which is legalism. Legalism. After Paul visited Galatia, he later learned that the Judaizers had come into the area behind him, trying to pervert the gospel that Paul had given to them. And the churches were listening to them. These Judaizers were Jews, probably mostly, uh, if not all, were Pharisees that claimed faith in Christ, but um, still wanted to hold on to Judaism. It's a big deal when you work hard to prove how worthy you are of God's grace. <laughs> okay, that's a contradiction. You don't earn a gift, so grace is. But there are some folks who work hard at their religion, and they don't want to let go of the works that they've done. Now, Paul was one of those who worked extremely hard while he was uh, in Judaism. But he said in Philippians, when I really got up my eyes to the truth, the gospel of grace, wow, I counted all that stuff as refuse uh, to count the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ as gain. 
wow, why would you want to continue on in the law when God has given you salvation as a gift? Uh, anyway, we talked about that. But these were guys that tried to put people under the law. Uh, you know, the Jews who escaped the law when they accepted Christ, but Gentiles. They told them that you Gentiles have to be circumcised, become Jews before you can ex exercise faith in Christ to be saved. All right. And so Paul wrote this letter to counteract their teaching by presenting, actually he's defending, he's already presented the gospel when he was with them. Now he's left the area and he's trying to, now, he wrote him a letter to defend what he had given them because the Judaizers were trying to mess it all up. But uh, he, he wrote this letter to actually defend the one and only true gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace. And guys, that brought us last time to the second major section in our series, which we're calling A Journey in Liberty through Galatians. The second main point is liberty from law, which is really liberty from religion. And I want to camp on that for just a few minutes. As we studied a few months ago in our series, The Top Ten Lies of the Devil, without a doubt the biggest lie the devil has ever fed the human race is the lie that you get to heaven by being a good person, by being good and doing good. In other words, heaven, they claim, is a reward for deserving people. Folks, that is the lie of religion. That's the lie of religion. Every religion and religious system in the world, apart from Christianity, falls into the category of human achievement. We've talked about this. In other words, it's what we do, what we do for God to earn his favor, and if they do believe in the Bible and the God of the Bible, to earn heaven. Whereas only Christianity, which of course you realize is not a religion, it's a relationship. Whereas only Christianity falls into the category of divine accomplishment. Human achievement, that's all religion. Divine accomplishment, that's Christianity. In other words, what God has done for us through his son Jesus Christ to offer us a place in heaven is a gift. We have said many times, religion is spelled D-O. As in do, 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 and maybe someday you'll have done enough to earn heaven. Whereas Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E, as in Jesus' declaration from the cross, it is finished. It is finished. Again, I grew up in, Roman, uh, in the Roman Catholic Church where we were taught that religious practices and observances like going to Mass, lighting candles, keeping holy days, praying the rosary, abstaining from certain foods during Lent, and other acts of piety would earn us a place in heaven. This is absolute blasphemy. Not a little blasphemy, a whole bunch. This is absolute blasphemy against the completed work of Jesus Christ, who again said from the cross, it is finished. You can read Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6. He was beaten and whipped and bruised and tortured for my sins. By his scourging, I was healed. I mean, he paid the price and, and, and went through all the pain and suffering that our sins might be forgiven and we might be connected to God in a way that will allow all the blessings of God to flow from him into our lives and, of course, then someday be taken to be with him forever in his kingdom in heaven. You know, you don't have to turn to it. Of course, you're in the neighborhood. If you want to, you can. Galatians 2, verse 21. All right? right let me read it to the NLT. Such 
obvious logic. I don't know how people miss this. Uh, where Paul said in Galatians 2.21, I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. For if keeping the law, if observing religious practices could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. Somebody just told me this not long ago. They were talking to their I think mom, or sister, I think it was, and uh, asked her, well, because she was talking about getting to heaven by being good and so on and so forth. And then he asked her, well, then why did Jesus have to die? And just stopped her in her tracks. I mean, it's obvious to us. Some folks haven't thought it through. Why did Jesus have to die if I could just if I can get to heaven by just working real hard and being good? And why didn't Jesus tell us that, by the way? I mean, why didn't that show up in any sermon that is recorded in the Bible? Okay, Sermon on the Mount. The Father sent me to tell you this. You want to get to heaven, just be really good. Work hard. You know, go to church, light the candles, whatever you get. Just make sure you do all kinds of good works, and then you can earn heaven. Obviously, he didn't say that. Nope. Nobody in the New Testament says that because it's not true. It's not true. So Paul wrote his epistle to the Galatians to refute legalism as a basis for salvation and to reaffirm the message he had already given to them concerning the true gospel, the gospel of grace. Now, let's review quickly again verses 6 and 7, which we looked at last time. But Paul starts out the main body of this epistle with the words of verse 6, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. We spent a little time on this last week, so if you weren't here, you uh, may want to access this uh, teaching online because we broke that down. It's a lot going on in the Greek that doesn't come through in the English. But let me just say this. Why if Paul himself had given them the true gospel and had discipled them personally for the whole time he was with them, why were the Judaizers able to turn their hearts away from the truth so quickly? That's why Paul's shocked. and He's marveling. And the answer to that question is that they came against Paul personally and attacked his apostleship. He's not a real apostle. He's a phony. He wasn't with the original 12. Jesus never picked him. And once they were able to undermine the man, it was then easy to attack and undermine his message as being untrustworthy as well. And so we can see Paul defending his call as a true apostle right from the opening statement of this epistle. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle, look at, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Now Paul presents, guys, several arguments in defense of his message and ministry. And uh, today is going to be kind of informational uh, I want to kind of get into Paul's life, and I want to trace it through the New Testament because he gives bits and pieces of it here and there. You say, well, is that important for me to know all the details of Paul's life? Probably not, but as a teacher, details matter to me, and I feel like, you know, they should matter to us that we understand the man a little bit and how God worked in his life. We'll come back and tie it to our life at the end of this message. But uh, so Paul launches into some arguments in his defense, his defense of his apostleship, also his ministry, and so on. The first one I'll give to you is, he talks about how the gospel he preached was not from man, but of divine revelation from God. 
Look at verse, verses 11 and 12. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it by man, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Any religious system that originates with man, listen, is going to make man responsible for his or her salvation. Why? Because the human ego will just not have it any other way. It will always seek to exalt human effort as a basis for righteousness. All you have to do is look at every other religion and religious system in the world apart from Christianity to see that. Religion comes from man and is an expression of his pride to show he's good enough to work for and earn a place in heaven. In that regard, its religion is man-centered and works-oriented. Christianity comes from God and is Christ-centered and grace-oriented. In other words, salvation isn't something we earn by works. It's a free gift we receive by faith. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, among many other places, clearly states that. I don't know if you realize this, but the word religion comes from the Latin word religio, uh, which has a meaning influenced by the verb religare, which means to bind in the sense of placing an obligation upon. The dictionary defines obligation as duty, which in turn is defined as a thing which a person ought to do, a thing which is right to do. Therefore, religion is an obligation or duty to do certain right things. You say, well, what kind of right things? Well, that depends on whatever religion you're associated with. They're all different. They all got their own little do's and don'ts and lists of things that they want you to do if you want to get in God's good favor and work your way into heaven or paradise or whatever they're preaching. But religion is an obligation or duty to do certain right things. And if a person is faithful to do what their religion says constitutes good works, then they will earn a place in heaven or, again, paradise someday when they die. Now, folks, this is legalism. It's legalism. And this was what the Galatians were buying into, which led Paul to say, the gospel I presented to you didn't come from man. It was not given or taught to me by any man, but was given to me through direct revelation from Jesus Christ himself. You know, Jesus had taught the gospel to the other apostles when he was with them during his earthly ministry. They walked with him for three and a half years. And uh, while he was teaching others in the evening, while they were back in whatever place they were staying, no doubt he was teaching them, discipling them. So he taught the other apostles the gospel uh, many times during the, the three and a half years he was with them. And then later, though, he, the Lord gave the gospel to Paul as a divine revelation. A revelation is something that has to come from God. It's not something that we can conjure up, all right? Um, if it was something we could conjure up, we could think of, and, and, and so on and so on and so forth, then we wouldn't need God to reveal it. It's supernatural information that only God knows about, and he chooses to then reveal to us, like the rapture. Paul talks about how the rapture was a divine mystery. It was a secret from the Old Testament saints. God hid it. And now, but in the New Covenant, God revealed it to Paul and others. So Paul is saying, look, guys, you're criticizing me for not being a true apostle. 
And my message not really being the kind of message that is consistent with what you believe. Of course it isn't. It didn't come from man. That's religion. It came from God. God gave it to me. Jesus appeared to me. He revealed this truth. We call it the gospel of grace. William MacDonald, a wonderful Bible teacher, said in his commentary on this, he said, a moment's reflection will confirm this. Paul's gospel makes everything of God and nothing of man. This is not the kind of salvation that men would devise. Paul neither received it from some other person, nor was he taught it through books. It came to him by direct revelation from Jesus Christ himself, end quote. So the second argument that Paul presents in defense of his message and ministry, first one, the gospel he preached was not from man. It was a divine revelation that came from God. Number two, you guys think I'm a Christian. Well, I am now. I wasn't always a Christian. He talks about how originally he was zealous for Judaism and even sought to destroy Christianity, destroy the church. Look at verses 13 and 14. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism. Paul's testimony was no, was no secret. They all knew it. How I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Saul of Tarsus grew up the son of a Pharisee. And then after he was bar mitzvah, after he became a teenager, his father sent him to Jerusalem to live and to be taught uh, as a disciple of one of the seven greatest teachers in Israel's history, Gamaliel. Gamaliel. At one time, young Saul was a rising star in Judaism. We've talked about this. Why was he a rising star? He was brilliant, number one. Number two, though, he was, so, he was extremely zealous for the law of Moses. He said, more zealous than any one of my contemporaries. Why was he so zealous? Because he believed it was the truth. He believed it was the only way to God, Judaism, through the law. And so not only was he zealous for the law, he was determined to destroy Christianity, which he believed was a cult, a perversion of God's truth. In fact, Acts chapter 8 tells us that after Saul, and that's his Paul's BC name, after Saul voted for the death of Stephen, you can read Acts 7, where Stephen gave his defense before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council, and uh, they voted whether or not to stone him as a heretic. And uh, young Saul, uh, who was on the Sanhedrin, cast his vote in favor of Stephen's death. And so after Stephen's death, a great wave of persecution was unleashed against the church with Saul leading the charge, like blood in the water. Once they got Stephen, it was like blood in the water, and Saul was like a shark. He just wanted to go after every Christian he could lay his hands on. And so if you turn to Acts 8, just quickly, I want to read verses 1 and 3. First of all, Acts 8, verse 1. Now, Saul was consenting to Stephen's death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. They stayed in Jerusalem, verse 3. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church. I looked up that Greek word, the word in the Greek, havoc. It's an interesting word. It's a word used of a wild animal tearing the flesh off of its prey. This guy was a, he was a madman, all right? Entering into every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. 
Now, Paul wants to remind his readers that he didn't start off preaching the gospel. He initially started off persecuting those who had put their faith in it. And Paul gives his testimony uh, in several places in the New Testament. I'm going to try to piece them together because that way we get a full picture, okay? Uh, first in Philippians 3. Quickly turn to chapter 3, Philippians. Let's read verses 3 to 6. This is one of the places he talks about himself, all right, his testimony. And uh, Philippians 3, verse 3, For we are the circ circumcision. See, we don't practice literal circumcision anymore. That's part of the Abrahamic covenant. The message we teach is that God wants us to circumcise our hearts. Have, have a holy heart before him. Do what's right, okay? For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh, i.e., we don't practice religion anymore. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. Look, if anybody could boast about the works of the flesh, I could. That's what he's saying. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is of the law, blameless. You want to put up your Judaism next to mine, you're going to lose. Because I was more zealous than any of my buddies for Judaism. So you say to yourself, well, what happened to turn this zealous Pharisee and number one persecutor of the Christian faith into the champion of the church who came to be known as Paul the Apostle? Well, I'll let Paul tell you in his own words. Turn to Acts 22. I'm going to read it to you out of the NLT, but I'm going to set it up first. In Acts 22, Paul comes to Jerusalem. He wants to pay a vow there at the temple. And there were some Jews from out of town that had seen Paul when he was uh, coming through their area preaching the gospel. Now, they were in town for, uh, I think it was the Passover. And they saw Paul in the temple, and they freaked out. And they said, men of Israel, here's the guy. This is the guy we are telling you about who perverts the law of Moses and so on. A big brouhaha. You know, everyone went berserk and they started grabbing Paul. We're about ready to tear him apart when the uh, Roman commander came down, stationed at there at the Temple of Antonia on the, on the Temple Mount, runs down with his, his guys, his soldiers, and they rescue Paul out of the clutches of this angry mob. So they're carrying Paul, you know, like it's some kind of concert. They're carrying him on their, you know, above the crowd, up the steps. And he says, look, can I just address the crowd? I just have a few things I want to say. You see, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, but he never lost his heart for his countrymen, the Jewish people. He loved Israel. And so the commanding officer graciously said, all right, well, I'll let you go ahead and speak. And so Paul addresses this crowd of Jews there in the Temple Mount. And so let me read to you. You can read the whole thing on your own, but let me read it to you, the NLT. Acts 22, and I'm just going to read verses 3 to 16. So he's beginning to give his testimony to these Jewish uh, men. And Paul said, I am a Jew born of Tarsus, a city of Cilicia, and I was brought up and educated here in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. As his student, I was carefully trained in our Jewish laws and customs. I became very zealous to honor God in everything I did, just like all of you are here today to do. 
and I persecuted the followers of the way, an early title for Christianity. I persecuted the followers of the way, hounding some to death, arresting both men and women, and throwing them in prison. The high priest and the whole, and the whole council of elders can testify that this is so. For I have received letters from them to our Jewish brothers in Damascus, authorizing me to, to bring the following Christians up in Damascus, to bring the followers of the way from there to Jerusalem in chains to be punished. Verse 6, As I was on the road approaching Damascus about noon, a very bright light from heaven suddenly shone down around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now you can go back and read this uh, as it happened in, in Acts 9. It's recorded for us what actually happened. And so he's recounting what events took place as recorded in Acts 9. So the Lord appears to him, okay, and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, well, who are you, Lord? I asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus of Nazareth, the one you are persecuting. The people with me, Paul said, saw the light, but didn't understand the voice speaking to me. They, they heard thunder or something, but they didn't make out the words at all. They saw the light, though. Verse 10, I asked, what should I do, Lord? And the Lord told me, get up and go into Damascus, and there you will be told everything you are to do. I was blinded by the intense light and had to be led by the hand to Damascus by my companions. A man named Ananias lived there. He was a godly man, deeply devo uh, devoted to the law and well regarded by all the Jews of Damascus. He came and stood by me and said, Brother Saul, regain your sight. And at that very moment, I could see him. Then he told me, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one, Jesus Christ, and hear him speak. For you are to be his witness, telling people what you have seen and heard. What are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized. Have your sins washed away by calling on the name of the Lord. Paul, make no more. Saul, don't waste any more time. Receive Christ as your Savior. And let's get you baptized. The third argument that Paul uh, presents in defense of his message and ministry is number three. He was called to be an apostle directly by the Lord Jesus. This didn't, appointment didn't come by man, is his point, okay? Turn back to Galatians chapter 1, let's read verse 15. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. Let me just stop there, all right? Paul was chosen by God for the ministry he would eventually call him into, listen, even before he was born. Everything about Paul, actually Saul, his nationality, his mental ability, he was a genius, I'm convinced. The fact that his father was a Pharisee who would bring him up in that tradition, even including where Paul was born and raised, in Tarsus of Cilicia, which is a province in southeastern Turkey. Why was that important? It contained one of the greatest libraries in the world. It drew a lot of people in, all right? And Paul got to know a lot of different people, a lot of, a lot of Gentiles. He got to know the Gentile culture very well. All of this served to prepare and equip Paul for the ministry, the ministry that Jesus had committed to him. Uh, of course, guys, the moment of Paul's conversion came on the road to Damascus, which was when the Lord officially called him into the ministry. Now, for this, I'll to turn to Acts 26, because here Paul is giving his testimony to King Agrippa. And I like this passage for a uh, couple of reasons. I'll tell it to you in a moment. 
But here he's given his testimony to King Agrippa. Acts 26, I want to read verses 15 to 18. So now he's recounting again this incident where the Lord knocked him to the bright light, knocked him to the ground, you know, and, uh, you know, said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Verse 15, so he said, well, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Isn't it interesting? Who was Paul actually persecuting? Christians. But whatever you do to the least of these, my brethren, you do for me. We don't realize, I think, sometimes that when we take it upon ourselves to attack each other as Christians, Jesus bleeds because we represent him. Right here, it makes it obvious that Saul wasn't persecuting the church. Yes, he was, but he was really persecuting Jesus. Something to think about, okay? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, verse 16. But rise and stand on your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and the things which I will yet reveal to you. So this began a journey where the Lord Jesus Christ revealed himself to Saul. He gets saved. And now they begin a, a walk together where the Lord is going to reveal to him numerous other things. The rapture, the timing of the rapture is. Um, the gospel itself, and so on. Verse 17, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. And this is a description of the gospel, what it does, okay? I'm sending you, Paul, to be my apostle to the Gentiles. Verse 18, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and, and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is all part of Paul's defense against those who would say to him he wasn't a real apostle, and the message he's preaching is a bogus, heretical message not in line with Judaism. Yeah, yeah, amen. Back to Galatians chapter 1, verse 15. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now, guys, scholars are divided on the exact chronology of Paul's life. Is it critical that we know the chronology, I don't think it's critical. I, I would like to know it. Why would you like to know it? Because I'm a teacher. As a teacher, I want to know stuff. Okay? But scholars are divided on the exact chronology of Paul's life. Let me try to piece together what I think happened. Again, um, probably not going to help you walk with Jesus this week. Although it may. Who knows? Okay? It's just good information to have. It seems that right after Paul was converted on the road to Damascus and was led into the city, being blind, his companions had to take him by the hand and actually lead him into the city. He stayed in Damascus for three days, in darkness, he couldn't see, where we learn he fasted and prayed while he pondered his life. I want you to think about this. You got a guy who was probably the most zealous Jew that ever lived for the law. He's a scholar. He's a theologian. He's built his life on his knowledge of the law of Moses. 
And as such, he devoted his life to stamping out this Christian cult uh, who preached the false messiah, a guy named Jesus from Nazareth, because he couldn't be the true messiah. The true messiah is going to lead us in a battle against Rome, establish the kingdom. And so he's going 100 miles an hour in one direction. And he hits a brick wall named Jesus Christ. Knocks him to the ground. He's blind. He spends the next three days fasting and praying. You have to understand this. He had to deconstruct a lifetime of theology and rebuild it from scratch. You wonder why he was fasting and praying? I mean, his whole life had been destroyed and God was in the process of remaking it into a brand new creation. Wow. After three days, God sent a believer named Ananias to Paul. Turn to Acts 9. Acts chapter 9. Let's start with verse 17. And Ananias went his way, because the Lord told him, go, go into this particular house. You'll find a guy named Paul, Saul. Uh, he's praying. Uh, I want to I send you to him to speak to him. So Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying hands on him, on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came here to Damascus, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once. And he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food and was strengthened, then Saul spent some days with the disciples, Christians, and at Damascus. Immediately he preached the Christ, Jesus, in the synagogues. He was going 100 miles an hour in one direction, hits a brick wall named Jesus, knocked to the ground. The Lord picks him up, saves him, spins him around, and shoots him out 100 miles an hour in the opposite direction. You can understand why the Christians were like, what? No way this guy got saved. They're all running for their lives with this guy. Verse 20, immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose that he might bring them bound uh, to the chief priests? In other words, you know, this is the guy that was arresting Christians, having them executed. Now he's come here to do the same thing. We know why he's here. You're telling us he's preaching the gospel now? Hard to believe. Verse 22, But Saul increased all the more in strength, his faith, and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Wow. Now, guys, it seems that there is a gap of time between Acts 9, verses 22 and 23. A gap of about three years. After Paul's initial ministry in Damascus, which could have lasted several weeks to several months, instead of going right up to Jerusalem to introduce himself to the other apostles, the Lord led Paul into the desert of Arabia, where he spent the better part of three years. Now, a lot of Christians haven't pieced this together, all right? I mean, they know what the Bible says, but they haven't pieced how this works, all right? So let me just say it to you. He, uh, he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, was led into the city, got, gets, he finally accepts Christ after three days. Um, he begins to preach. Well, he's already a theologian. I mean... Already the Lord's beginning to show. Initially, after he realized Jesus Christ is the true Messiah, I think the Holy Spirit began to cause things to dawn on him. All right? And I'll show you what I mean in just a second. 
So then he's led into Arabia, the deserts of Arabia, for three years. Now listen, during this time in Arabia, we know that Jesus was revealing things to, to Paul. And during this time, uh, Jesus himself taught Paul, not only the true gospel, but also how all of the Jewish scriptures pointed to him. Remember what he told the Pharisees in John 5, 39? You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but it's they that testify of me. Yet you refuse to come to me that I might give you this life. Well, that's a, in part a quote from Psalm 40, verse 7. The volume of the book, the scriptures are written about me. And I want you to see this. This time in Arabia, just Paul and the Lord. You say, well, did he appear to him physically? Maybe. I don't know. But this time in Arabia was going to be invaluable to Paul's ministry. In fact, it became his, listen, backside of the desert, which was a phrase used of Moses. How God taught him for 40 years. Remember, he believed that he was raised in Pharaoh's house, being a Jew, the events of his life. He realized that God had a bigger plan for his life, um, that God really had was raising him up to be a deliverer of his people out of the Egyptian slavery. And so at one point, when he was 40 years old, he decided that, I'm going to start. Well, listen, you don't just decide, I'm going to start. You let God lead you. So he rushed the program of God and um, found out that he had killed an Egyptian in the process. And so Moses fled down to the desert of Arabia. And by the way, that's where Sinai is located. The traditional site of Mount Sinai in Egypt, that is wrong. The Bible tells us that Mount Horeb Sinai was in Arabia. Okay, He was in Arabia, the same desert Moses was in as God was preparing him for the ministry. The apostles had received three years of teaching from Jesus Christ. He was with them for three and a half years. And now Paul was going to have his own opportunity to be taught by the Lord for three years. He's an apostle. Why wouldn't the Lord give him the same benefits he gave his other apostles? Galatians 1 verse 17 nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. I didn't immediately get saved and run right up to Jerusalem. But I went to Arabia and then returned to Damascus. And guys, this seems to be where the chronology of Paul's life is picked up again in Acts 9, starting with verse 23. So Acts 9, 23, Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. He's, he's a dynamo. He's back in, in Damascus after being in Arabia for three years, okay, and he's a dynamo. Nobody can refute this. Nobody can debate him. So what do you do if you can't win the argument? You kill, you kill the guy. That's where, they, you know, that's where they were coming from. They were the leftists of their day. But to verse 24, But the plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Verse 25, Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall, um, obviously an opening in the wall somewhere. Let him down through the wall in a large basket. He talks about this in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 32 and 33. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. There's no way this guy got saved. It's a trap. 
Verse 27, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to him how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists. Hellenists were Jews who were born and raised in, um, in Grecian areas, in, in Gentile areas, but Greeks. Paul was, uh, by the way, was a, uh, a Hellenist uh, Jew. He was born and raised in a uh, Gentile-dominated area, Gentile culture, and so on. So Jews that were born in these Gentile areas, um, the Hellenist Jews, disputed against, or disputed with Paul, and, and then attempted to kill him. Verse 30, when the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Now, guys, this coincides with what Paul says here in Galatians 1, verses 18 to 20, where it says here, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except for James, the Lord's half-brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you indeed before God, I do not lie. This is all the truth. I'm just giving you my testimony. So you know who I am. Okay, you think you're dealing with a Christian. I am a Christian now. I wasn't always a Christian. I was one of the premier antagonists against the Christian faith. And, and all of these events happened to bring me to Christ and to get me now to preach the gospel. Okay? So guys, after his short stay in Jerusalem, uh, Paul began making his way back to his hometown of Tarsus. Let's finish Galatians 1, verse 21. After I went into the region of Syria and Cilicia, he's on his way home now, all right? Getting a little hot for him there in Israel. So the brethren take him down to Caesarea, and then they sent him home uh, back to uh, our modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, uh, but Syria and Cilicia that he traveled through. And um, I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea that were in Christ. So nobody, get, a lot of Christians never seen Paul face to face. They heard of him. They knew what he taught. But verse 23, but they were hearing only, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God in me. As Paul went through Syria, he preached the word. And then as he enters into uh, Asia Minor or Turkey, he continues to preach the word. He arrives in uh, Cilicia, the region where the city of, of um, Tarsus. Um, but he, pre he preached the gospel all the way home, started churches and so on. Historians have concluded that he remained there in Tarsus for possibly seven years, ministering in relative obscurity, you know, until Barnabas recruited him for the work in Antioch of Syria. God was moving, and you can read about this in Acts chapter 11. But God was moving among the Gentiles, and Barnabas didn't feel he had enough expertise in Gentile culture to really fully minister to these people that were getting saved. And now he remembered Saul. So he goes and he finds him. And it says in Acts 11, verses 25 and 6, Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. This is Antioch of Syria, 
all right? Um, Antioch of Syria became the headquarters for the Gentile church, even as Jerusalem became the headquarters for the Jewish Christians. And that kind of brings us now to the end of chapter 1 and gives us, a, uh, I think, a good look at Saul's or Paul's testimony. Now, let's just quickly make application. What lessons can we learn from Paul's life that we can apply to our own? Because, listen, I didn't want to just give you a history lesson. I wanted to give you something you could take home and say, okay, well, God has used Paul in a phenomenal way. Are there lessons? Why does the Holy Spirit include all these facts about it? Think about it. All these things are written for our learning. When the Holy Spirit goes to great length to leave, add a lot of detail to his work, there's a reason for it. And usually it's because he wants to make application to our life at some point. Okay? So what lessons can we learn from Paul's life that we could apply to our own? I'm just going to fire these out. There's five of them. We don't have time to really get into them too much. I'll let you pray about it and, and meditate on these. Number one, you can be zealous for a religion, thinking it to be absolutely true, only to find out you are wrong. I hope you find out you're wrong. Uh, our loved ones find out they're wrong if they're not born-again Christians. I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church. I thought I had the truth. Uh, I was wrong. The Jews thought they had the truth. They were wrong, which is how we have seen in Paul's testimony. Let me read you Romans 10, verses 1 to 4. Paul said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They're zealous for the Lord. They don't have the truth. Or they have it. They don't want it. They reject it. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own system of righteousness, religion, have not submitted to the righteousness of God, for, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So you can be zealous for something and be absolutely wrong. That's where the Bible commands us to search the scriptures, to know what the Bible teaches on any given subject. It was actually that which caused my wife, who was also raised in the Catholic Church, we were married in the Catholic Church. God began to work in my heart first, and I began to read the Bible, and we were passing out living trans, new living trans, excuse me, living translations at that time, uh, easy paraphrase versions for passing them out to young people everywhere. And she said to me one day as we were buying a bunch, I think it was a Christian store in Woodfield. Um, can I have one of these Bibles? Of course. Now, later she told me she only wanted to read it to prove me wrong. <laughs> but as she read it, God got her. God got her. The Word of God is living and powerful. Search the Scriptures. Don't be afraid of the truth. All right? Number two, God has a plan for your life and has had it long before you were ever born. Seek Him for that plan. You're not an accident. You are not an accident. I don't care what anybody tries to tell you. That is of the devil. God has known you from before the foundation of the world, and he allowed you to be born on this earth because he has a plan for your life. Seek him for that plan. Oh, God doesn't want to do anything with me. Oh, yes, he does. Ephesians 2, 8, uh, 2, 8 to 10. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. 
Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things. Listen, he planned for us long ago. God's got a plan. And seek him for that plan. Number three, God can change the direction of your life suddenly, dramatically, and completely. All right? So be open and be flexible. Don't get discouraged if things haven't changed yet. Well, I've been praying a long time for this or that. Okay. All right. Well, so was, uh, so was Joseph in Genesis, right? 13 years, a slave uh, and in prison. No doubt praying every day. And one day is an opportunity to interpret a, some dreams for a couple of guys. And that led to him becoming prime minister. It happened so fast, it probably made his head swim. God can change the direction of your life suddenly, dramatically, and completely. So be open and flexible. Don't give up hope. Even when you can't see him working, he is working. Somebody has said that very large doors swing on small hinges. And by the same token, very small events can turn our lives in a direction we never thought possible. And God opens up a door and suddenly everything is new. Number four, don't rush God when it comes to his plans for your life. Moses rushed God. That was a disaster, okay? We get impatient, though. The children of Israel, the Bible says this. They became impatient in the wilderness. They weren't getting to the promised land fast enough. And it led them to murmur, complain, and sin. Don't do that. Don't rush God. Learn what he's teaching you so that when he finally brings you to the destination he has planned for your life, you're ready, you're prepared. And let me just end with this. You have been, number five, you have been uniquely prepared for the ministry God has for you. Like Paul You've been called from your mother's womb. Everything about you has been designed by God. Nobody could fulfill your ministry as perfectly as you can. I'm not saying God can't raise up somebody else and do an adequate job, but we are, and I hate to use the word snowflakes. Remember, I used to use that word, you know, snowflakes are all unique. Well, that's been tainted now. I'm not going to say you're a bunch of snowflakes, okay? That wouldn't be nice. But you are definitely unique. You're definitely unique. When you look at yourself, everything about you, God has ordained. Again, you were called by God from your mother's womb. He's got plans for your life. Seek him. Well, I'm too old. Well, Moses was 80 when God finally called him into active ministry. Um, I heard of a woman who was in her 80s when God called her to be a missionary in Chile. And she had one of the most incredible impacts on that country that anyone's ever had. It's never too late. God is always at work. He knows when the time is right. For everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. Amen? All right. We will pick up our study, God willing, next time. Father, thank you for your word. <laughs> and thank you, Lord, for teaching us through the lives of others in your word, like, like Paul. Lord, give us grace to glean the lessons that you've placed here. Take them to you every day. And we just thank you, Lord, that... Uh, we're not an accident. We have been made on purpose for a purpose. Give us grace to know that purpose and to live it with all our lives. Father, we ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.